Today's scripture reading is from John 4, 7 through 30. Please read with me the verses in bold. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. Many of us in the room can share some story of an encounter with a famous person. These are the exact words from my last sermon. Whether a celebrity in the form of an actor or actress, an athlete or some local hero, I'm sure we can all share a moment or a picture of such an encounter. As a nobody, I like bragging that I met a somebody. 
just by being at the right place at the right time. By mere coincidence. It's exciting. Like the last time I saw Bob Barker from The Price is Right on my plane, or perhaps I was on his. Or the time I saw Arnold Schwarzenegger at a California state fair. Or the time my family and I were at Star Wars Land at Disneyland, where we saw the cast of the high school musical, the musical, the series. And as the cool kids say, I-Y-K-Y-K. If you know, you know. All right, that was stupid. <clears throat> or how last week, my boys and I stared eye to eye with Guillermo from the Jimmy Kimmel show as he walked right past us. Or that time I was at a movie premiere and bumped into Kevin Costner, but that's a story for a another day. You know, I'm beginning to think that the numerous run-ins with celebrities is making me famous. Not. <laughs> this morning, we're calling our sermon series, Run-Ins with Famous People. Just kidding. It's not that. Uh, we're calling the series, Encounters with Jesus. The times an individual encountered the person of Jesus through the gospel of John. What it did in their life, what it did for their faith, and how it transformed the way they saw the world. Many of the run-ins with famous people happen merely by chance. These opportune moments come to us when we least expect it. To catch a glimpse or an autograph or a picture to capture that we really did meet someone famous. Other times we plan on it. We go to a place where we hear a celebrity might be in anticipation of their coming. Or we get to a game early hoping that the superstar athletes might come to our corner and sign a ball or a card. But what if? What if that famous person goes out of their way to meet you? I don't have any of those kind of stories. But the stories that capture our attention in the Gospel of John are like this. The stories that we read about are not accidental run-ins, they're not chance encounters, but divine appointments. In order for us to understand the story uh, this morning, we have to understand the geography of what's happening in our context. Now, there's two strangers that meet beside a well on a hot afternoon in Samaria. One a woman, the other a man, one a Samaritan, the other a Jew, one a nameless person, the other one someone who's gaining notoriety and popularity for the signs and miracles he was performing. Just as a little bit of a tidbit of information about the Gospels or the Gospel of John and the encounters that Jesus has with different individuals, these first three, right, the wedding at Cana that we looked at two weeks ago, the meeting with Nicodemus last week, and the Samaritan woman today, are only mentioned in the Gospel of John. Unique to his Gospel only. They do not appear in Matthew or Mark or Luke, the other accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. 
Another interesting tidbit about the narrative of this encounter is that it's at Jacob's well, and it's the longest recorded conversation that Jesus has with anybody. I think that's fascinating, including his own disciples. Number three, there are numerous lessons about racial justice, racial prejudice, perhaps religious hatred, uh, dealing with moral outcasts. Again, these are all themes that are found in this particular story of Jesus encountering the Samaritan woman at the well. So our story begins as John describes for us where Jesus goes after his meeting with Nicodemus. He's in Judea, and he's making his way to Galilee. In Jesus' day, there were three regions stacked on top of one another. There was Galilee in the north. There's Samaria sandwiched right in between. And there's Judea, the southern country, or the southern parts, or the southern kingdoms of Israel. So Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. And so in order for the folks in Judea to get to Galilee, they actually would go east, cross a Jordan River, go north, cross the Jordan River back west to get to Galilee. That's not the shortest way. It's actually a roundabout way to get from one place to the other. But many Jews, in order to avoid Samaria, would take this route to avoid any kind of interaction with these Samaritans that the Jews hated. They loathed them. So Jesus makes his journey, and he makes the decision to travel right through Samaria. And it tells us in our text this morning that he had to go through Samaria. Higher from the journey, he stops at this well in a town called Sychar in Samaria at noontime. It's about the sixth hour, the text tells us. And he sends his disciples into town for food. And when a Samaritan woman comes to, the, to draw water from this well, instead of leaving, he says to her, Will you give me a drink? Let me give you a little bit of history as well as geography. The Jews and the Samaritans disliked each other. It went all the way back to 722 B.C., about 700 years before the coming of Christ, when the Assyrians conquered Israel. And you know this because we went through a whole sermon series on the Minor Prophets. But the Assyrians conquered Israel, and they took them into captivity. And they brought in Gentiles from other areas to settle in that same region. And so eventually those Gentiles, again, non-Jews, they intermarried with the Jews who had been left behind. And so over the generations, they were called Samaritans because they had their own religion. They were a mix of a Jew and Gentile. And so uh, they built their own temple at a place called Mount Gerizim. They developed their own language, their own version of the Old Testament, which was the first five books of the Old Testament. And again, because of all of this history, the Jews hated and looked down on the Samaritans. They were, again, to them, they were religious and radical half-breed heretics. And so, again, if you can imagine how difficult that is to understand, again, it's just animosity that developed between these two groups. So as our story this morning begins, it tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. And again, the question is, why did he have to? 
was it to get to his destination as quick as possible? You know, this game I love to play, and I'm, not sure, and I, I'm almost positive you'd like to play it as well. Beat the time on your GPS. Did you ever get that? I beat it every time, by the way. But, you know, did Jesus go through Samaria to, to cut time? You know, um, we don't get that sense as you read through John chapter 4. There was some intentionality, some purpose to his going through Samaria. The answer is simple and profound. Jesus went because he intended to meet this particular woman. He knew she'd be coming to the well at precisely that moment, at noon. He was sitting there, weary from his journey. And again, if you read the story, nothing happens by chance in this story. Every detail is part of the outworking of God's plan. The woman, I must tell you, is not looking for Jesus. All she wants is water. But Jesus is looking for her. You have to go to Samaria if you're going to reach Samaritans. So he doesn't avoid Samaria. He doesn't hurry through it. Though she does not know it, this woman has a divine appointment with the Son of God. This is not some chance encounter. The time and place and all the circumstances around this meeting at a well with this nameless Samaritan woman had been arranged before the world began. You see, because John chapter 4 tells us, and it shows us, it, has, it gives us a glimpse of the sovereign grace of God. It's all about the providence of God, that nothing happens by accident, that nothing happens by chance, that some might have put a picture of Jesus over a water fountain, but God knew it, and God knows it. And you may look at your own story and, and wonder about the different circumstances and the different happenings and the way that God allows the timing of things to happen so perfectly that you have no doubts in your mind that it did not happen by, by chance but must have been some, by some divine power that God appointed these things. John chapter 4 is all about the providence of God because Jesus finds her. She did not find him. And this becomes evident as you continue to read the story. And as I shared last week and Brad introduced the week before, you know if you have met the real Jesus by the realization that you are not in control of that encounter. And as you read the story, there are surprises why would a Jew speak to a Samaritan? Why would a man speak to a woman in public, which wasn't allowed in, in the culture of that day? Why would a Jew drink from a Samaritan's cup if by drinking it, he would become unclean, according to the ceremonial law? When the woman sees Jesus, she knew he was a Jew by his dress and probably by his accent. 
He knew he was a stranger just passing through. It was, in the first century, it was almost unheard of for a man to speak to a woman in public in those circumstances. And to ask for a drink of water was even more unusual since the rabbis taught that it was a sin to touch a utensil that a Samaritan touched. It's all captured in the question that the Samaritan woman asks of Jesus in verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And listen to how Jesus responds. Jesus answered her in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God, calls it a gift. The only place in the gospel is that word gift. Dorian is found. And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In verse 10, Jesus immediately lifts the conversation to a different level. I think I mentioned last week that Jesus' modus operandi, his MO is to change the topic all the time, right? He changes the topic of the conversation quickly and he answers a question that has not been asked. And in this case, by a Samaritan woman, what does he do is that he answers the question that should have been asked. And he says, if you knew, if you knew. In other words, Jesus seems to apply, you don't know me, but I know you. You don't know me, but I know you, and I've known you. I know everything about you. If you knew, Jesus seems to be saying, if you knew me, then you'd be asking me for a drink, not the other way around. Jesus seems to imply you're talking about physical things, but I'm talking about spiritual things. You're talking on a plane that's easy to understand, but I'm talking about something that's more lofty and about heavenly things. I'm struck by the fact that Jesus returns again and again to the central issue. Do you know who I am? And I think that's why in the Gospel of John, again, the seven I am statements, again, this revelation of who Jesus is, is, is uh, seven times repeated in, in different illustrations and allusions, right? Again, different uh, metaphors to describe, again, who this person of Jesus is. I am. Do you know who I am? Do you know my true identity? For you could ask, and I would give you water that leads to eternal life, not just a drink of water, but a gushing spring that wells up within your heart. And if I can, if I can pause there for a second and just say, do you know who Jesus is? For I think we... We think we know. We've heard all the stories. Maybe perhaps we've grown up in the church and we, we've heard about the stories and the miracles that he does. But do you know Jesus? For certainly this woman knew he was a Jew. 
that he might have been a prophet, had very limited knowledge of who Jesus was, but Jesus seems to be asking the same question, do you know? If you knew. The confrontation. Jesus says to her in verse 16, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. You know, I don't know about you, but on on the one hand, it seems like Jesus is being really insensitive. (laughs) Come on, Jesus. I mean, is he trying to embarrass this woman? The answer is no. His instruction is to call her husband and made her very uncomfortable. He doesn't want to go into detail, I'm sure. And so she simply replies, I have no husband. And yes, that was true. But it wasn't the whole story. And it wasn't because she was trying to hide the truth. But what she doesn't know is that Jesus knows it already. And so he proceeds to tell the rest of her story. The woman has had five husbands, and the man she is living with now is not her husband. And by asking about her husband, Jesus exposes this woman's lifelong pursuits of happiness. Evidently, she has entered into one failed relationship after another. We're not giving fault here. It could be by her own doing or perhaps the result of violence or wrongs done to her. We don't know the whole story, only that Jesus knew the whole story. Jesus exposes and addresses this woman's void, emptiness, and search for meaning. And I think what's evident as we read through this text is that Jesus loved this woman dearly. So here it is. The wonder of God's grace. Only someone who loves you can look at your past without batting an eyelash. Only someone who truly loves you can look at your past without blinking. Real love means knowing the truth about someone and loving them anyway. He's not ashamed of her past, but he cannot help her until she gets beyond the shame and admits the truth, a point of conversion, a point of confession. And that's what we do every week. And it's not to guilt us into something, but to remind us that we fall short. It's a reminder that we're not whole until Jesus comes and fills that hole in our hearts. A point of confession to be honest with ourselves and look at our our sin. The ways we violated the commandments. The ways we haven't lived up to our expectations according to the moral law. Again, all this, we look at ourselves and we realize that again, Uh, in light of the perfect standard of God, that we fall well short. He does this not to shame us or to embarrass us or to make us feel small or to belittle us. So why does he do it? Why does God confront us about our sin? Because he compassionately calls us to repentance And he confronts us about those things in our life that's preventing us from enjoying the life that he provides for us, 
uh, to the full. He wants to release us from the pain that sin inevitably brings. God wants to release us from the guilt of our sin that holds us captive. And he's waiting to show us his overwhelming grace, his mercy, and his love. I don't get a chance often to preach back to back. But I preached last week on Nicodemus and this week about the Samaritan woman. Something else about Nicodemus is that he's a good person, a person of accomplishment, well-studied, respected by his peers, a person of status. Everything from the passage tells us that he's a good person, but the Samaritan woman is the exact opposite. A past that's followed her and haunted her. A person of little status. I mean, think about this. Neighbors shun her. Husbands rejected her. Jews hate her. She's rejected on earth. But God wants her. God accepts her and embraces her. She's rejected on earth, but accepted in heaven. John 4 teaches us that Jesus does his best work with the outcasts. He does his best work with the marginalized. He does his best work with the broken. And if you ever feel that way, that you're broken, and, and you have this past, and you think, there's nothing in me. There's nothing in me that warrants the goodness of God. And perhaps you look at your own life, and you look at your your past, and you say, there's no way that God can love me. The story of the Samaritan woman is good news. That there is hope for people who think that they have fallen so far that Jesus will not take them. He specializes in forgotten people. Maybe you feel this way. Friends, there is no pit so deep that the love of God is not deep enough. If this passage is true, no one, no one, no one is too sinful to If this passage is true, there is no one so lost that the Lord cannot find them. The psalmist says, even the depths of Sheol, right? And the thing is, whenever you confront and you meet and you encounter this Jesus, you will never be the same again. For in this story, the woman leaves her water jar she goes back into her town and says to the people, come see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? I think the woman is converted, if we can use that word, between verses 26 and 27. How do we know? Because she leaves her water pot, goes and tells the others in town, and I'm struck by how little this woman understands. All she says is, he knows me. That's not the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And I think he's the Messiah, she says. That's not the four spiritual laws. 
but God uses those who are willing to be used. And when Jesus gives you living water, you want to share it with someone else. And we come to the end of the story in verses 39 and through 41. Many of the Samaritans in that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. Here is the lesson in the power of the gospel. One woman with inadequate knowledge and just a mustard seed of faith brings her whole town to Jesus. She never attended any classes or read any books. She met Jesus, and he transformed her life. And she could not stop talking about it. Sometimes we wonder how little a person can believe and still be saved. Or we ask, how much do you have to understand to get to heaven? Evidently, the answer is, not much. According to this story, two things. That you are a sinner. And you are in need of a Savior. You are a sinner. That you're in need of a Savior. And the table reminds us of that every day. Because on the night that Christ would be betrayed, he took bread. He broke it. But this is my body. broken for you. I will be your savior. Jesus says, I will be your savior. Sacrificial death of a broken body on a cross, he offers it to us and says, if you eat of it and you drink of it, we're reminded of these two things, that we're sinful and we need to be saved from that sin. He took the cup and said, this is the covenant. This is the new covenant. Uh, this is the cup of the new covenant shed for the forgiveness of many. Those who eat of it and drink of it proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. This is our proclamation. This is our profession when we come to the table that, again, Jesus is our Savior because we need a Savior, a Savior from our sins. You know, uh, I think the gospel writer, John, I think he knew the, I mean, as he's writing the, the gospel, right, as he's writing this, the story of Jesus, in the very early parts of the gospel of John, he's, he's telling us Jesus goes to a Samaritan woman and finds her and asks her for a drink, a drink from the well of, of Jacob's well, and instead Jesus offers her a drink. And how appropriate as he's dying on a cross, his last words on a cross would be, I thirst. I thirst. 